0: You're listening to Countermoves, a Christian review of ideas shaping church and culture. On Countermoves, we interview some of today's most incisive thinkers on the ideas and trends affecting Christian witness in a secular age. Our mission is summed up in the words of Carl F.H. Henry. If the church fails to apply the central truth of Christianity to social problems correctly, someone else will do so incorrectly. Well, welcome to the latest episode of Countermoves, and today's episode is going to be focusing on an issue that when you actually peel back the life inside of a local church, it's an issue that really is impacting a lot of people, and it's the issue of infertility. And to have that conversation, I'm joined by uh, my friend and professor, uh, Dr. Matthew Arbo, who is a professor of uh, Christian ethics and moral theology and kind of theological studies at Oklahoma Baptist University. And he's the author of a brand new book called Walking Through Infertility that's coming out through Crossway very soon. And so today we wanna to have a conversation about the issue of infertility. Um, it's an issue, is again, plaguing so many people inside the church, but most people don't feel comfortable talking openly about struggles with infertility. So we're gonna deal with this issue as in-depthly as we possibly can. So. Dr. Arbo, first, thanks for joining us for yeah, today, for having, appreciate for you being here. The first question is, of all the topics that you're interested in, why a book on the topic of infertility? Yeah.
1: Oh, uh, thanks for having me on. Yeah, absolutely. Well, uh, the, primarily for church reasons. Yeah. I'm, I'm a theologian. Um, it's easy to sort of give thought to the stuff in the tower, to the more abstract. Right. But. Um, but this particular question and experience came up just within the church. Um, started a few years ago, discussions with pastors. Um, they talk about what they hear and yeah. they talk about what other couples are going through and um, the kind of frustration and pain and grief and sorrow and all of it that right. uh, accompanies infertility. And uh, so that just got me thinking about it in greater depth, as yeah. just as a theologian. And then uh, my family relocated, and so the questions came back up again in our, yeah. our new church. And so it, it's just a, it's a human experience, yes. um, and it's extremely common, extremely common. And it's comparably undiscussed. Right. And, and what's fascinating, too,
0: is uh, this theme is woven into the biblical text. Yes. Like, it's like not, we're not even talking about a subject that is foreign to the Bible, a lot of arts a lot of issues we sometimes abstractly talk about in modern technology sometimes do seem kind of uh, disjointed from the, from the biblical text yeah. uh, ultimately we don't think they are but it seems that way yeah but with an issue of infertility it's right there in the earliest earliest
1: passages of genesis yeah oh yeah it's a thematic in genesis right. yeah right for for all kinds of interesting reasons some of which I explore in the book the covenant depends on the passing on of generation right so, so if they're not passing on, the covenant can't pass on. I mean, so, it's almost like a threat. I mean, that's hard. It's a weird way to describe a threat that God enters into with His people. But. So it's. I mean, we're.
0: It's fair to say that if if infertility goes unresolved in the context of the scriptures, yeah. like that disrupts the messianic line. Yeah. So I mean, like, yeah. r- really, th- this this is dealing intimately with the centrality of the Christian narrative mm-hmm. and how Christ uh, comes on the scene. Mm -hmm. So I I actually, I'm having these self revelations as we're having this conversation because I've never thought about how infertility, uh, actually is that central Mm -hmm. to the text. So how would you define, um, infertility? So walk us through kind of maybe what, what does that consist of? Is it, is it a, something that has to be medically diagnosed?
1: Uh, so just walk us through your definition. That's a great question. So, um, according to the C D C just under ten percent of all couples experience some degree of infertility. Yeah. Which is a significant figure. My guess is that it's a little bit higher than that. Yeah. Um I'm not a member of the S C D C but sure. <laughs> I just I just support. Well anecdotally, I, I like I hear it all the time. Yeah. Yeah. So I you wonder it must be from folks who actually voice it or go into clinic or, yeah. you know, how those numbers are based, but um, it, there's a little bit of opacity in definition for good reason but mm. usually you're looking at about the year and a half mark so okay. if a couple has been um, not preventing pregnancy yeah. for approximately a year and a half then um, sometimes a clinician might say that they may be experiencing some symptom of infertility yeah and and be willing to also offer some sort of plan of approach for intervention or for treatment yeah but that that's sort of a, that's a very artificial benchmark right um, Right, a couple may go on longer. There could be reasons for that. You yeah. have struggle, um, but that would need sort of further interrogation.
0: I know you're not a medical doctor yeah. or a scientist, but in your kind of statistical research on this, mm-hmm. is it primarily a something that males bring to the marriage, or is it something that females bring to the marriage? Is there is there a statistical Revelations on that, or is it just kind of It, it, it is an equal offender, regardless of biological sex. Yeah, the
1: latter part. It seems like it's sort of right down the middle. And there's a lot we still don't know, Yeah. and that's that, that clinicians still don't know about the reasons for infertility. Yeah, uh, we know a lot more than we did even, right you know, twenty twenty five years ago. I mean, the medical science has come a long way, but um, there's still a tremendous amount that's inexplicable. In, yeah. in some ways. So whether it lies on one side or the other, male or female, you know, it's it ends up kind of dividing down the middle then you could put it one way or the other, but it wouldn't be very fruitful to do that.
0: I want to get into kind of the subject of your book and kind of what you're trying to accomplish in the book and maybe even walk us through high level what the chapters are. But one of the first questions I have before we get into the book itself is, why do you think people are hesitant to bring this up in the context of the local church? What about infertility becomes one of those uh not just unspeakable a little bit but there's almost some
1: shame and
0: embarrassment yeah.
1: in it so why is that yeah that's another great question uh, some some of it's um specific to couples you know there's um there's a general experience too and um i mean at least one initial reason is that you know our procreative lives are private and yeah. we don't right. share those i know with others and uh, that's in a lot of respects how it should be. Exactly, yes. Uh, <laughs> but That's another biblical
0: sexual yeah, ethic. Yeah, exactly, it's private.
1: Exactly, so we don't, we don't go around talking about all that. But we do um, we do have something to say to each other about um, our struggles and about hurts and yeah. that kind of thing. And in many ways, totally understandable why a couple would feel a sense of frustration yeah, or a sense of fear or anxiety uh, or even a sense of shame or embarrassment. Mm-hmm. Um, some... Even so far as to feel a sense of stigmatization, right, and, right, and uh, and detachment, and some couples will talk about their infertility almost in ways that mimic the stages of grief. You know that they have to sort of they, it, their, their emotional lives sort of ebb and flow in that way, right? Um, but it's 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 not talked about in part because you know, there's those private matters, and there's the sense that it may be a stigma, or they um, they may be looked down on as yeah. um, and not not being able to fully contribute in the way that that couples who have children are, which is just, you know, it's not true. It's, under, yeah. again, it's understanding why a couple might feel that way, given the culture. But
0: My wife and I, we have uh, two daughters, a, a third due in August, mm-hmm. but we obviously have not had probably medically diagnosed infertility. Mm-hmm. But uh, with our second and uh, third daughter, it took my wife and I uh, a very long time mm-hmm. to conceive, mm-hmm. to the point where we were wondering, you know, should we consider seeing a doctor? and mm-hmm. This is a side conversation. We're not individuals who felt comfortable with a lot of medicalization mm-hmm. of conception, mm-hmm. um, but we were just wondering: should we figure out if there's something behind this? Yeah. But I remember in those—I mean, honestly—year-long attempts to conceive. There's a sense, especially as a male, of mm-hmm. uh, because you know men view a part of manhood as the ability to uh, have children. Mm-hmm. It's what it's what we're. Uh, designed toward mm-hmm. even if it's not necessarily always fulfilled mm-hmm. uh, and I remember feeling a sense of kind of am I less than fully masculine and yeah. fully male if I'm not able to do and bring about what the male body is is designed for yeah let's talk about the book in particular so walk us through I guess what are you trying to accomplish in this book walking through infertility and maybe even, give us a chapter synopsis of each chapter. Because yep. I, 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 I really want to emphasize this book on a side note because I think you know, as we've addressed, it's an issue that goes undiscussed in the context of a local church. I want people to be fully brought into awareness of, of what your book is trying to do at the, at the chapter level so that they have a sense of the different touch points that this issue hits in the life of the local church and in the life of a marriage, and then
1: individual discipleship. So, yeah, yeah. Like give us the uh, overview. Yeah, so the, the full title, Walking Through Infertility, Biblical, Theological, and Moral Counsel for Those Who Are Struggling.
0: Which a is a typical academic long, title. Yeah, yeah. yeah, <laughs> yeah
1: long, long subtitle, uh, just, but descriptively accurate. In that right. way. So, and that's really what the book does. Um, so the audience for the book is primarily infertile couples, but I've written this book with a very careful eye to um, Folks who have, uh, have their loved ones are infertile, right. Right? so friends and family of infertile or pastoral staff or church leaders. So it's really it's really meant for anyone yeah. who has contact with this particular experience. Um, so the chapters, um, there's three or four chapters as we're calling here. Oh, so is it a, is it a, is a shorter book? It is a shorter book. Okay. The okay. idea that I hear I, idea here is you can sit down and, um, and in a sitting or two complete the book. Okay, um, and none of it's meant to be overly um, jargony or overly okay. abstract. Uh, the idea is that anybody could sit down and, you know. And how many pages? Visit. Just curious. That people always think of page counts. Yeah, I think total pages around 100, 120 pages, okay. I think. But all of it distilled down for anyone who takes interest. So right. the, the first chapter, biblical council, walks through the, a little bit of that story we've already talked about yeah. uh, in Genesis. Or the infertility narrative and the infertility narrative in Luke. Yeah. So um, Elizabeth's right struggle, and uh, I, I focused also on the language used, yeah, particularly by the women to describe their own experience. And what I mean, and what's some of that language? Yeah. Also, some language like barrenness. Right? Yeah. Their womb is barren, which is just so stark. Yeah. And austere, um, lifeless. Right. And that that sort of description, I mean, fits their world. And and uh, uh, and Elizabeth describes her situation as being a reproach. And that's the way mm-hmm. she describes, after she's conceived, that the Lord has lifted her reproach. Yeah. Um, and that's that's how, within these narratives, the figures understand their position, that when they conceive that God has granted them that gift. Yeah. Um, now, that's not the sort of projected promise. And I can't name it and claim it, right. unfortunately. And right. I actually might like to. Um, there, there, are, there are stories, it happens that, all the stories end well. But that's not everybody's story. Right. And the reasons doesn't well have their own kind of internal logic to them and that kind of thing. So um I walk through the basic sort of biblical outline okay. and contours of this particular um, experience. And it happens that, as you say, the Bible speaks to it. It right. speaks to it early. And it's it's complicated. Yeah. I mean, these narratives, even in Genesis, are complicated. And they're 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 distinctive as yeah. well. Right. And what people feel about them and how they're and particularly for the women, how their husbands treat them, and of course, there's some cultural stuff going there too. Now, the theological chapter sort of broadens back out, yeah, and asks some questions, pivotal ones about the nature of discipleship. Now, what does it mean to mm-hmm. worship Jesus as Savior, as King, but also to be His student, to live life with Him on His terms? Yeah, uh, those are basic, really basic ideas. I think more refreshment for anybody than anything, but. But they also, I think, reorient us and reorient our belief and our affections back on the one who is the source of life, the giver of life, um, and which we then reimagine ourselves. Again, we are first disciples of Jesus, and then we happen to be a whole lot of other stuff. Right, right, right. We happen to be male or female, we happen to have children or not, or we happen to be in Oklahoma or not? Yeah, you know, there's all yeah, kinds yeah, yeah. of things that happen to us. So that that's that's the orientation and the hierarchy of our, our identity. Uh, we are first disciples of Jesus Christ, and that's important in um, in an experience of infertility. Yeah, giving that over to him. Yeah, and asking for him to show us who we are in yeah. light of what he's done. Right? and that that means that also we do that together, right? That mm-hmm. uh, as a church we are together in this endeavor, and I think infertile couples particularly need to hear that. But so do. Um, other folks, right? Friends yeah. and family and pastors—they need to know that this experience can feel isolating, right? That um, and that the important thing is not to to put it sort of arms length and not really know what to say, or to or worse, to just yeah. sort of issue platitudes. You know, of, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know this is you know, once you start try, why, why don't you stop trying? You know, trying so hard. That's right. Or some or right. um, some other equally ridiculous suggestion. Yeah. It's Totally understandable, but don't explain that away. Yeah. The important thing is presence, and it's impre- so it's important both for the church to be present to the couple, yeah, right, and pastors to be present to the couple there for them, and for the couple to avoid or resist the temptation to detach, yeah, and to fully privatize and to sort of throw up the walls of secrecy, but instead to step into community, yeah, and allow for presence, allow for help, yeah, um, that's hard, that's really hard, but yeah. that's the nature of the church. It's not a, it's not an option here. Yes, right? to participate in life of the church, it involves risk. Involves presence, so um, that's the sort of theological part. Now, the ethical part I'm not going to get too much detail here, but the idea is to just give some guidelines. I give a sense of like how the treatment of infertility might go, yeah, a standard account. So, there there is some
0: kind of practical here's what this looks like, absolutely. Okay, cool, absolutely. Someone who is kind of experiencing this at the layman's level, yeah, can you, you feel like can walk away seeing, like, okay, based on this. I might
1: need to pursue X, Y, or Z. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. So th- that chapter particularly, it's a little more technical, a little more rule oriented, but yeah, uh, the idea is to help anyone reading to sort of see what's at stake, what yeah. sorts of things are offered, and then for also for them to kind of get some moral salience on the sequencing. Yeah. You know, so it, it, you know, just taking the first step and getting an assessment, or maybe you know some non-invasive hormonal treatment or something yes. like that, you may think, well, that's that's okay. I mean, it's a, plenty of early treatments are perfectly fine, non-invasive, non-risk, yeah. low cost, and you know, there's plenty of stuff. But then you kind of escalate. And the more you escalate, naturally, the moral complications. Yeah, get, so um, we could go down a long rabbit's trail on
0: this. Yeah. So uh, real quick, like where, as a wisdom issue, as a biblical prudence issue, mm-hmm. like where do you think... It's a bridge too far yeah. in attempts to resolve infertility, mm-hmm. and where they a couple might need to say, "Listen, science might be able mm-hmm. to allow us to conceive, mm-hmm. um, but I'm not sure the use of science in this avenue yeah. is concordant with Scripture."
1: Yeah, any wisdom there? Yeah, that's that's a great question. It's a hard question, right? Hear, you know. Right. Um, I think first of all, for couples. Uh, who are experiencing infertility and and who think that they're ready to embark on some sort of treatment to mm-hmm. counsel with someone and they in the field, uh, they need to get as educated as they can early on about what fertility treatment involves, yeah, and, and try to get like a lay of the land, you know, so that they're not walking into everything. As a surprise, yeah, that's important, and also as they do to set some boundaries for themselves, right? To formalize them, talk them out loud, speak them out loud. That's what my wife and I did when we were having this conversation
0: about do we go see a doctor. We both were of the same mind of like if if we do, we're not willing to invite kind of invasive third party technologies into
1: this situation. Yeah, that's that that sets an entirely new moral category, right? So early on, a couple may. be assessed and and maybe, you know, after they run some blood tests and some other, some other diagnostics, they figure out, you know, and ask some hard questions. Sometimes for couples, um, one or the other is overly stressed mm. and just a decrease of stress or an increase of exercise or change in diet. Yeah. Um, we're learning more about vitamins and right. the importance of vitamin balance. And so, I mean, those are not foolproof, they're not, they're not guarantees, but for some couples that's all yeah. they need is just a little tweaking of, of habit, a little tweaking of lifestyle. That's some not, and some need more, like yeah. um, some, uh, like I said, hormonal treatment um, or some outpatient surgery, yeah, uh, removing a cyst from an ovary or yeah. something else, you know, something, you know, it's surgery, but it's we're not talking about, yeah, uh, it's, out, it's outpatient, and it's it's more or less just to treat that what they think is causing the particular forms of infertility. As a, this is exacerbating it, but well, let's address that narrowly, right? Yeah. Well, at, at some point or other, if these are ineffective, these less invasive. Uh, interventions, then a, a clinician might suggest that a couple are good candidates for um, an artificial reproductive technology or an ART. Yeah. And and that sets um, some new moral challenges uh, that aren't present in the earlier forms of treatment. Right. I want to tackle this
0: issue of artificial reproductive technology that you just mentioned. And I want to preface my comments by noting that there are a lot of good bible believing evangelical scholars who disagree on the the various appropriateness of some treatments regarding this technology and i know we could spend the next 2 hours having this conversation totally. at a high level what guidance would you maybe give to a couple who says to you hey you know do you think artificial insemination is appropriate do you think ivf is appropriate i guess what's what's the line that you draw uh, and trying to relieve infertility through
1: third-party technology? Yeah, that's a great question. So, I mean, what's what's happened uniquely is that the clinicians can implicitly, if they've advised a couple that they should think about ARTs, what they've done implicitly is they've also suggested externalizing the procreative process. Right. right? So that means that it's not a treatment of something narrowly within that particular individual's body or the couple's body but outside or within the couple's union exactly right exactly right yeah so i spend in the book i I focus mostly on ivf in vitro fertilization and the intrauterine posit so uh, I, i don't spend tons of time on um on the artificial insemination okay i describe the process a little bit couples need to be introspective and prayerful And ask themselves hard questions, ask each other hard questions about about that. I I don't offer a strong word of caution on that part. I do offer a strong word of caution against IVF.
0: Yeah,
1: Um, I would share that opinion. Yeah, Yeah. I I, I think there's a few um, good reasons. I'll just kind of give a quick synopsis um, because it's easy to get into the ethical weeds a little bit here. But let me describe um, the process and then kind of talk about some principles. So with the and because some may not know exactly what IVF involves. So in vitro fertilization actually means in glass, that's the in yeah. vitro part. And it used to at one time be kind of referred to as, as test tubing. Right. And um, it was a sort of more, it was a more crude process and that, those techniques naturally have um, improved every time. But uh, the idea is that the um, prospective mother, the wife um, has eggs um, extracted. Mm-hmm. So, donates them and the father donates sperm, mm-hmm. and um, the eggs are fertilized in clinic. Right. All right, in glass. So, um, the father's sperm is used to fertilize the eggs. Now, depending on place, depending on clinic, depending on couple, there's um, how many eggs are fertilized is sort of up in the air. Right. It's and it was all, one of the ethical difficulties. That's a huge, huge problem. <laughs> yeah, huge huge. problem. Um, and it, so, and the, the couple needs to. Set limits. Right. I'll, I'll talk about that in just a second, but they absolutely have to set limits. They need to know exactly what they aren't going to do if they're going to proceed with this. But that's that process of fertilization. Once the egg is fertilized, embryo, and those are frozen. Yeah, and then the mother, prospective mother, comes to clinic uh, during her fertility cycle, and yeah. uh, usually multiple embryos are implanted on the prospect that that raises the likelihood that a child will be born. And, yeah, uh, that that's also why um, you've seen a that we as a society have seen a resurgence of a surge and multiple births for this process. Right. So that's the, that's the process. Um, Let me uh, mention a couple ethical concerns. One is, is the background of the backstory to IVF in order for in vitro fertilization to become a practice an available option for couples. Clinicians had to refine their techniques Mm -hmm. and that meant testing. And the only way to test, IVF is by using embryos. Right. right. So the backstory before the IVF ever became possible, option for couples that required the destruction of hundreds of thousands, possibly millions yeah. of embryos. So this just this was just the price to be paid for the for the service. Yeah. That just needs acknowledgement. There's not yeah. much now. Right. Be living so in 2018. If, can so to anything. bring about life, life was expended. That's exactly right. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and just sort of detached ways, uh, I mean, yeah. on the assumption that it, presumably these aren't human beings. Right. Of course they are. Yeah. So that's the backstory. I think it deserves acknowledgement. Uh, may not be sort of the morally decisive thing that persuades a couple, but there's a couple other features. And this I'm kind of relying on um, a British theologian named Oliver O'Donovan who um, kind of works out these risks. Yeah. And um, so on the one hand, any couple that wants to have children accepts that there will be risks in their procreation. Yeah. Right. We don't know. We conceive a child, we don't know who's coming. Right. I mean, we've seen ultrasounds, they can run some tests, but we don't know. You know, we just don't know what kind of temperament the child will have. Will they have you know a birthmark on their arm? Or sure. will they you know, what 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 kind of kid we, we accept that. Yeah. You know, we accept that they may have some form of intellectual disability or something else. Sure. That's just the nature of it. That's the risk. With IVF and artificial reproductive technologies, there's also the acceptance of an enhanced risk. Okay. And um, here's what I'm getting at with that you've got all these moving parts. Mm-hmm. All right. You've got the removal of the egg, the, the donation of the sperm, their relocation, mm-hmm. their fertilization, the relocation of specimen or embryo to freezer. Yeah. Right. And then they're frozen for however long is necessary. Yeah. And we're learning now, as recent history has shown, at least this year, there have been at least two freezer failures in two different places in the United States yeah. where thousands of embryos have. have um, died. I had not heard of that. But so the, so the freezers gosh. are not you know, perfect and not yeah. flawless. So if they go bad, then the, the embryos are lost. Yeah. So there's that risk now right. of just actual storage. So there's all these moving parts. And um, it raises an important moral question. Um, if a child conceived through IVF is born with some sort of malformation or some sort of disability, who's responsible for it? Yeah, I... That's who, who bears responsibility for that? There's no other place in our moral experience where this kind of question comes up. Um, and and here's the thing: it's it's not really all that important morally, um, whether or not there's a high likelihood of that happening. Yeah. All, all that matters ethically is that um, for the couple, they've decided, right? It's the decision to embark on it, In other words, that just that the risks are worth it. Yeah. But I mean, the, the thing is, that the risk isn't on the couple; it's on the child, right? Yeah. So it's imposing the risk onto the child right. who will be born. And that to me presents a significant problem because this is not importantly a treatment right because infer- infertility is not a disease right um in this case it's a it's a reproductive option and it's voluntary the couple doesn't have to proceed yes yeah. you know it's understandable why they might sort of find themselves in that position or why they might find it attractive everybody wants children of their own progeny yeah uh, it's a natural human want it's a desire and people, some feel very deeply about it but that's not itself sufficient justification for moving in a direction that may involve a huge, huge amount of risk, you know, especially on the child. It's just the willingness to accept that risk. It's a huge, huge problem. And then uh, lastly, there's the, the challenge of unintended consequences. Right. So um, there's multiple stories of couples who were infertile. They proceeded with IVF, they conceive, and then down the road they conceive children naturally by yeah. surprise. And, and then they have multiple children in their household and they don't know what to do with their embryos. And yeah, it just raises all these ethical
0: dilemmas. That yes, the ethics and the and the technology are trying to bring about mm-hmm. a desired good mm-hmm. in the eyes of the couple, but there are so many unintended uh, consequences. Mm-hmm. That again, I, I people have the best of intentions mm-hmm. around this technology, I yeah. believe.
1: Yeah.
0: But we oftentimes, you know, put or we subjugate. the the interest of the child and the best intent for the child to the will of the parents. Mm -hmm. Um, And that's where I think, accidentally, evangelical culture can make an idol Mm -hmm. of children. Now, please tell me, I'm not trying to denigrate children at all, but we have to have these conversations of, is it appropriate Mm -hmm. to employ risk-enhancing technology Mm -hmm. to bring about a good that, again, could have ramifications on the child. And more importantly, and where I have some particular tr- concerns, is it makes children a product of parental will, yeah. which on the one hand is true, mm-hmm. but it doesn't see children as a divine deposit, and divine gift, yeah. Yeah. Um, that it becomes a subject of human desire. Yeah. Uh, and, and again, human desire plays a part and desire mm-hmm. for children, obviously, mm-hmm. uh, but it, it sees that w- we can actually kind of play God in yeah. some sense, scientifically and, and technologically. And I, I want to transition to uh, back kind of inside the life of a local church, mm-hmm. and what do you think is intrinsic to Christianity that gives us the ability to to speak something unique into this perspective? Mm what does the Christian narrative have to say that
1: is uniquely distinct from what the world has to say Yeah, regarding yeah. infertility? Yeah. I mean, an important one is, um, I think that you are not your accomplishments. Yeah. Um, and having children is not an accomplishment in mm. that way, in no wait, wait, wait. way. Tease that out. What you mean by yeah, that. so um, it may happen that you conceive the children and bring them to term and um, see them into the world and nurture them, but that's not something you decided. I mean, you decided, I suppose, to um, to procreate, but whether or not you would have a child was not in any way your decision. You know, in a way you're just sort of re- receptors to right. the good grace of God, yeah. you know, in that way. And so that's one part of it. And two, God is the giver of life. And um, that's uh, one of the main ideas in the book is that um, infertile couples are not being judged. Mm. They're not um, being punished. For, and so therefore they're infertile. Um, Maybe another way to see it mm-hmm. is that God has just given them a different way of being family. And so participating mm-hmm. in his life and in his mission. Mm-hmm. And uh, so I think actually that the church is a community holistic enough and and weird enough and idiosyncratic enough mm-hmm. that um, we have all kinds of people among mm-hmm. us and with us. And um, our common thing is that we love Jesus. Right. We're united in this love for Jesus. And among us are single folks, yeah, there are couples who have children. There are couples who don't have children, and mm-hmm. all of these individuals, right, these families, have ways of contributing mm-hmm. to the life of the church and to God's mission, and, and God are all exemplified and modeled. Exactly scripture. right. Yeah, yeah. Exactly right. You I know, mean, and, single people are not
0: less than. No. And plural people are not less than, uh, because of what the scriptures say about uh, the value of the marriage, the integrity of the marriage, mm-hmm. um, and the, the value that that couple in their unique perspective brings to the local church yeah. that we are uh we, we downplay this family language in the bible yeah but um you know we are family in the body of christ yeah. and this notion of spiritual motherhood spiritual fatherhood the scriptures can address that ache and that longing mm-hmm. um by virtue of what we just see in the new testament yeah you know
1: yeah no that's right and um the, the, the church, the local church, needs to be careful about, um and, and or I should say that, that they need to be mindful of their own internal culture, particularly if there's some sort of latent hierarchy. Uh, well, there's the families with children who are doing, you know, yeah. sort of, you know, sort of, D- generally described as doing participating the mission, and there's other folks who who are not. They're doing different things. You know, you sort of sort of schedule, or arrange your whole ministry of mission around yeah. the kinds of fam- that's that's just not uh, in the end going to be the most important way of thinking about the mission of that church. Uh, it's important that churches are are, are mindful of that yeah. and and see the holistic character of their body. And also, so of uh, parenting. You know? Yeah, parenting is um you know they, they, it was a way at one time describing that it takes a village. Well, I mean. Maybe it takes a church. Yeah. yeah, no, I love that, man. That's really good.
0: It was one thing that you just said that it made me think about is uh, I, I see around Mother's Day now on Twitter, mm-hmm. A, celebration of motherhood. Yeah, of course. B, a super attentiveness yeah. to um, encourage those who are not mothers who want to be. Yeah. And I now, I, I think for the past five, six years, every Mother's Day at church, Mm-hmm. Has been a both a celebration mm-hmm. of motherhood, a recognition of the good mm-hmm. of longing for motherhood, mm-hmm. and I think third, a recognition that there are those who, uh, for whom motherhood is not an option, mm-hmm. um, a biological motherhood. Yes, yeah. yeah. And so I think the church is doing a good job in mm-hmm. responding to this, uh, just in terms of our rhythms around Mother's Day. Yeah. Every single sermon I've heard for the past five or six years on Mother's Day has, again, said. We love moms, we celebrate it. And by the way, there are many in this room Mm -hmm. for whom this day is really, really painful. Yeah, And I think it's a little rhythm like that Mm -hmm. that shows some maturity. Yeah, it does, yeah it does. Uh, That's an
1: important liturgical development. Yeah, Yeah, I I think it's... It's pastorally sensitive, our church is the same. Liturgically it's, sensitive. That's that's a great term. I yeah, think. you know, that we, we, see it, we see it in the gathering place. We say, you know, here are the realities of those who have gathered. You know, yeah. and uh, like you uh, mentioned too, those who've lost mothers that year. Yeah, you know, between right. previous Mother's Day. So there's, there could be all kinds of feelings in the room. Some not celebratory. Yeah. you know, and uh, it's good for ministers to, to both affirm and to to care and to, um, to encourage. Yeah. So,
0: last question: yeah. What advice do you give to pastors? Because I, I assume, well, it's inevitable. This is going to be an issue at some point in someone's ministry. They're going to have to confront yeah. and counsel and care for people in this situation. Pastors listen to this podcast. Walk me through just high level. What do they say to this couple? Yeah. Um, what's
1: What's their approach that they take with them? Yeah. Uh, in my experience, the pastors typically find out about um, a couple's struggle with infertility along the way that is their significant period they've been dealing with it for a while yeah some of them may even have uh, already resorted to our ARTs. right um, but what I'd say to pastors is um, is one um, they I mean kind of have the, the pastoral ears perked you know um, and eyes open if a uh, a couple as uh, of the church mm-hmm. is is without children doesn't mean to single them out but um, listen to them Mm-hmm. And be present to them. I mean, not in any special way, yeah. You know, but um, let that be sort of in your pastoral approach. You know that you have this. Uh, well, I want, you know, maybe it's asking a question to yourself, even and uh, just yeah. a question of discernment about what this couple could be going through. But I think pastoral presence is absolutely crucial. Yeah. Right. Uh, and not not a pastoral presence that overly advises. There may be a time for that.
0: Right. Okay. Maybe
1: a time for that. Uh, but initially, I think what most couples want is to be heard. Yeah. They want someone, and rightly so, they want someone to grieve with them. They want yeah. somebody they can trust who um, will bear with them in their suffering. Because that's what the, they feel most. They, they want someone that can, the same way just familiarizes with suffering and comes right. to them. and um, that, that doesn't see them as a, as a problem to be solved, right? But yeah. that sees them as full participants yeah. in the life of the church and who have this thing yeah. that's hurtful and wounding and hard and frustrating. And that even, importantly, even may have um, adverse impacts on their marriage. Yeah. So that's a second sort of part I would put to the pastoral part that, you know, couples who, once you're aware of it, couples who do have that challenge, it's important to be mindful that there could be relational struggle there. Yeah. Blaming, detachment, abuse. We are, human beings are pathological about blaming one another. <laughs> Patholog, we love doing it. We, I mean, we just have this instinct yeah. that we need to blame. Partly because we wanna explain, we want to find the origin of things. But we also want to self-excuse. It's not us. We yeah. can't do that. Couples are vulnerable to that. And um, especially when it's deeply, deeply felt yeah. like something like this. It's his fault or it's well, her fault. Are, we, we can't do that. in the marriage. Yeah. yeah we can't yeah, yeah, do that. Yeah. And that's so toxic. Uh, so pastors just need to be mindful of that without being intrusive. Uh, yeah. That couple invite them in, but just be present. And I, I think that's what the couple most needs is pastoral care and attention, shepherding. Um, which uh, at right, at then the pastor's in the place to offer the right word of advice at the right time. Yeah. Right. When they're, when they're ready there for receipt
0: you know i i uh, i'll just validate everything you just said because in those seasons I mean, we had two of them yeah. where like we were like lord are you going to give us another child yeah, yeah. i remember the most important things for my wife especially was uh, that she could just talk to other women
1: yeah
0: um and the women in her life could not solve her problem for her yeah but the fact that they just cared yeah and that there was empathy yeah Really went very, very far yeah. to validate to validate concern for my wife and yeah. to validate that. Um, just again, human empathy goes yeah. so far, so far. <laughs> on, on a range of issues. I mean, I feel like we need to write a book on human empathy yeah. from a Christian perspective because <laughs> that would just solve a lot of our issues as well. Yeah. But um, hey, so thanks for joining us oh, on this episode. On. This was really, really productive and helpful. And um, when does your book officially
1: release? Any day now. You any can day. Pre- pre-order now, um, but it should hit shelves any day. Awesome. So I'm excited about awesome. it. Well, Dr. Arbor, thank you for being with us. Okay. Thanks for having me on. All right, appreciate it.